Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians, as we continue working our way through this precious epistle of Paul the Apostle. Colossians chapter 1. We come now to the thanksgiving in the uh, introductory portion of the epistle, verses 3 through 8. Verses 3 through 8. Let's pray together before we read. Almighty God and our Father, we sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus. We humbly submit to the authority of your word. And we pray that if there is any heart here that does not, that is still in rebellion against you, that that heart would be bowed under the, the weight of sin, the recognition that he or she is a lost sinner in need of a Savior, and we pray that you will save the lost among us today. But we, your people, would bow our hearts and minds to the teaching of Holy Scripture and to be obedient no matter what the requirement to be obedient no matter what the call, because you love us and because we love you in return, because we are bought and we belong entirely to the one who bought us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Open your word to us, we pray, and use the exposition of this epistle to transform the lives of your people and to help us to be more conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. This is the word of God. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit." I think it's important that I remind us from the start that there were some in the church at Colossae who were tempted to follow after the false doctrine, the heresy that was developing there, which was a commingling of Jewish elements with pagan viewpoints, all destructive of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the book of Colossians is Paul's answer to that false teaching and to that heresy. Let me remind you the elements of that heresy that are discoverable through a study of the book as a whole. There was an exclusive spirit developed around mystical experiences for the initiated. There was a mingling of worldly philosophy with the Christian faith which was destructive of what Christianity is. There were speculative views on creation and most likely also the worship of angelic beings there was a denial of the deity of Christ and a denial of his true humanity. And there were ethical practices as a result of that which either led to licentiousness on the one hand or to legalism on the other. But the Apostle Paul at this stage in his letter brings a thanksgiving for the church to the Lord. Paul 
follows the standard approach in letter writing of the ancient day, and he brings a thanksgiving at the beginning of his letter. I wonder when you study the epistles of Paul, if sometimes you don't say to yourself, Paul, would you really get on with it? Would you really get on with those things that are most important? In Colossians, won't you just take us right to verse 15 and, and verses 15 through 20, uh, those things that are the high point of the epistle Uh, those things that are really at the core. But the Apostle Paul would answer you and say, this is important. This also is a result of my theology. This thanksgiving is something that pours out of my heart. I really can't help myself. I must give thanks. And that also should characterize your heart and mine. Thanksgiving. Do you have a thankful heart? Do you have such a heart that it is controlled by gratitude to God? Uh, Is that motivating in your Christian walk and in your everyday living? Gratitude is a mark of the Christian. A prevailing mark of unbelief is ingratitude. Speaking of the truth suppressors, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what the Apostle Paul is saying there is an unthankful heart, listen to me, an unthankful heart shows that we do not wish to retain God in our knowledge. Because He is the one who gives every good and perfect gift. He's the one to whom we offer thanks. He is the object of our praise and of our worship. So we now come then to this thanksgiving, and let's begin there. The first thing that we see or should think of when we come to this thanksgiving in Colossians is gratitude as a characteristic of the Christian. Well, it certainly was characteristic of Paul the Apostle. Think of where he had been, a persecutor of the church, a denier of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the risen Lord, met him on the Damascus Road, and he was converted instantly. Isaiah 51.1, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Listen, people of God, we marinated in our wickedness and we were parboiled for hell, but God intervened and saved us from our sins. Shouldn't we have grateful hearts? That's why Paul the Apostle begins with gratitude. And in the process of taking the letter of the ancient day, as I pointed out last week, he takes what is conventional and he makes it unconventional. Ancient letters have thanksgiving, but for Paul, gratitude is distinctly Christian. He's overjoyed by the news that he has received about the church, and he pours out his gratitude to God the Father. So gratitude is a characteristic of a Christian. Remember the Old Testament, oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. Well, we post-resurrection readers of the Psalms have even greater reason for thanksgiving. Jesus has come. He has died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He intercedes for us, and He is coming again. And so it's a characteristic of the true Christian that we are filled with thanksgiving and with gratitude. Second thing then as we move along in this thanksgiving is to note that the Apostle Paul's gratitude is offered to God. 
And so we read in verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Paul always keeps in mind that the plenitude of blessing we have that comes from the triune God deserves our thanks and our praise offered to God in the fullness of His being and in light of the great thing that He has done in saving us from our sins. Now the Gnostic heretics would say the Father is far away from us and He is disinterested in us. But the Apostle Paul says right from the start, oh no, that's not true. Indeed, I am accepted in His sight through Jesus Christ and I come into His presence and my prayers are offered to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And did Paul pray simply sometimes or occasionally for the church? No. Notice he says in verse 3 that he always did this. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. When I pray, says Paul, I give thanks always for you. God's people are always on my heart. Can we not learn from Paul's delicate tact in the way in which he ministers to the Colossians? He has great concerns for this church. He knows that they are in danger. There is a great heresy brewing among them, and perhaps some of the readers of his epistle are tempted toward the gospel-denying, mysterious, eclectic, philosophical, Christ-denying viewpoint of the heretics. But Paul doesn't start there. He starts with, I am thankful to God for you. I give my thanks to the Father for you. That's where he begins. Are you grateful for your fellow believers in Christ, those who are strong, those who are weak, those who may be more mature, those who are less mature? Are you grateful to be a part of His church? Are you grateful for the gospel and the ministry of the Word and sacrament, the love of the body of Christ? Or or do you take this for granted? When did you last in prayer thank God for the saints? for the people that surround you in this place, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, Paul says, I'm always at it. I'm always doing that. I'm always giving thanks to God for you. And that leads us to see, thirdly, the reason for his thanksgiving. Gratitude is offered to God because of the news that he has received about the church at Colossae. Notice verses 4 and 5 again. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So he's heard about how the Lord was at work among them. That was the catalyst for his thanksgiving. Epaphras has told him this. And so what has Paul heard? The Apostle Paul has heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He's heard about their Christ-centered faith. He's heard about their love, which they have for all the saints. He's heard from Pastor Epaphras. You know they really love one another there in Colossae. What is more characteristic of a Christian than this? It did not matter whether one was Jew, Gentile, bond, free in Christ. They loved each other. Their faith in Christ and love for Jesus led to love for each other. How can we love Christ and not love His people? How can we say that we love Christ and not love those for whom He shed His blood? 
And then Paul also includes with faith and love. You see, it's the old triad that you find in Paul of of faith and hope and love, except here it is faith, love, and hope. You find that he includes with faith and love the word hope. Notice again in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul is giving thanks because these Christians at Colossae are filled with hope that is stored up for them in heaven, laid up ready to be revealed in the last time, as Peter tells us. J.B. Lightfoot put it quite simply and beautifully, faith rests on the past, love works in the present, hope looks to the future. That raises a question in my mind. Let's pause for a moment and ask it. Are you future-oriented? Are you simply lost in the details of everyday life and you forget the inheritance that is laid up for you? Or are you future-oriented? To use the language of A.T. Robertson, the mainspring of consecrated living. That's a well-put phrase. The mainspring of consecrated living is this future-oriented hope that belongs to every believer in Christ. There's something really right about Christians who are future-oriented. And there is something radically wrong when we are not. There is something right about the Christian who longs for the day in which there will be a display of justice and in which God's grace to his people will be proclaimed to a watching universe. There is something right about the Christian who knows he will be with Jesus when he dies and longs for it. Something right in the Christian's heart when he says, I long for Jesus to come and can say from the heart, come quickly Lord Jesus. There's something right about the Christian when he can say, I long for the day in which there is the resurrection of the dead and the day of judgment to come. And there's something radically wrong when we as Christians aren't thinking that way and don't function that way. Well, this is the message they heard when the gospel was first presented to them, verse 5 tells us, and he stresses that what they heard was the truth. So he says in verse 5, the word of truth, the gospel, and stresses it again at the end of verse 6, that they had heard and believed the truth. He stresses the truth. Undoubtedly, he is saying, what you believed The gospel is true. It is your only hope, but what the heretics are bringing in is not the truth, but a substitute for the truth. And let me tell you, if you embrace it, it will leave you hopeless. Only the gospel can give hope to the lost sinner by God's grace. So there's no other gospel but the gospel that puts Jesus Christ in the place of preeminence and exalts his grace. And so I say to you, what is implicit in the thanksgiving and explicit in the epistle, I say to you, to us, Covenant Presbyterian Church, do not forsake this gospel, the fruit of which is the hope that awaits us. Do not Do not forsake this gospel. Young people, I warn you, there is much that is attractive in the world system that surrounds you. There is much that will draw you, but it is the devil masquerading as an angel of light. Do not forsake the simple but profound gospel of grace. Learn to be wise. Learn to be discerning. And that happens when you are radically, I mean radically, into this book. 
into this book that reveals Jesus Christ and sets before you constantly the hope that is laid up for you. This is where you find the truth. This book is true. Jesus Christ is true. His gospel is true. And the problem with the Colossian church is that all of these false philosophies that seem so good externally are tempting them to be drawn away from the truth as it is in Jesus as revealed in God's holy word. Don't forsake the gospel. I say it again. It will leave you hopeless. And so we have a hope, people of God. You have a hope, not an uncertain longing, not a maybe, not a perhaps, but a completely dependable promise of the future with the Lord because it is built upon the unchangeable character of God. Do you have such a hope? Do you live in such confidence? Is there someone sitting here this morning and you do not have that hope and you do not have that confidence? You need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But then as we move along in the thanksgiving, fourthly, notice that Paul's evangelistic heart offers thanks to God because of the spread of the gospel. Gratitude because of the spread of the gospel. And so we read in verses 5 and 6, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and indeed... In the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Paul is thrilled that the gospel is going out into all the world. It has come to the Colossians and also to the entire world. Now, this is hyperbole, of course. We know that there were many portions of the world into which the gospel had not yet come. But Paul ministers with the globe in his eye, and he sees the progress of the gospel, and he gives thanks that the gospel is spreading. Do you realize that by the time Paul the Apostle writes this epistle, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has spread through most of the Roman provinces? It has spread through Palestine, Syria, Cilicia, Galatia, Phrygia, Asia, Pontus, Bithynia, Macedonia, Achaia, Italy. It has touched Egypt, perhaps other parts of Africa, and has probably even spread as far as Gaul. And unlike the heretics that try to bind up a few people in their special philosophy that is not the gospel, Paul is thrilled that the true gospel is for every sinner no matter who he may be or where he may live. It is for everyone to hear. The gospel is to be taken to the world. And so there's a true universality to gospel proclamation. And Paul also adds that the gospel is bearing fruit and is growing in the world and also among the Colossians. Again, the words of Lightfoot, the gospel is not like those plants which exhaust themselves and bearing fruit and wither away. The external growth keeps pace with the reproductive energy. What a statement. The gospel, the true gospel, is fruitful. The gospel spreads. Where the gospel is believed, 
it will bear fruit. Well, what kind of fruit, you ask? Faith, love, hope, a deeper understanding of the truth, a prayer life that flourishes, a longing for worship, service to Christ's people, involvement in winning the lost by whatever means and gifts God has given you. But let me ask you this. What kind of fruit do you think would be born if they did not believe the gospel, but if they embraced the false philosophy of the Gnostic heretics? Well, it would lead to rigid asceticism on the part of some. It would lead to licentious behavior on the part of others. There would be no faith. There would be no love. There would be no hope laid up for them in heaven. I leave it to your imagination Oh, I, 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 I don't want to imagine it. But I leave it to your imagination. What would happen to Covenant Presbyterian Church if in another couple of generations they forsook the gospel and embraced the false philosophies of this world as so many churches have in our nation and in the world? God forbid that that would happen. But notice also in the thanksgiving that the Apostle Paul has gratitude for the faithful ministry of Epaphras. So he is thankful for faithful ministry. Or he offers his thanksgiving in the context of the faithful ministry of this man Epaphras. So looking again at verse seven and verses 7 and 8, just as you learned it, that is the gospel that you believe, this truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the reason that Paul can offer thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for their response to the gospel is that the Lord had a servant who took the gospel to them and believed, they believed the word that was preached. And that servant was Epaphras. He was connected to Colossae, we learn from chapters 1 and chapter 4 of Colossians. But right now, as Paul writes this letter, Epaphras is at his elbow. He's right there with him. He's at his side. And Paul and Epaphras, he says, are both willing slaves of Jesus Christ. He is a fellow slave with me of Jesus Christ. Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ in my behalf. Which probably means he was part of the evangelism team of Paul the Apostle, had been sent by him to evangelize the Lycus Valley, and this church in Colossae is the result of Epaphras' faithful ministry there. If you'll keep your finger in chapter 1 and turn over to chapter 4, notice what the Apostle says about this man Epaphras. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 12 He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, at least the founding pastor, perhaps he even grew up there, I don't know, but he's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, you know, it's a remarkable thing in any age and in our day, to be able to point to a man, to point to Pastor McDonald, for example, and say, he's a faithful minister of Jesus Christ. 
To say to our, our youth and family minister is a faithful minister of Jesus Christ. Well, that was Epaphras. And Paul points to him and he says he's a faithful minister of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 4 we find that he was a man of prayer. Laboring in prayer for the maturity of the flock and for their full assurance and their deliverance from the Colossian heresy. Preaching and fervent prayer go together. And in mentioning the preaching of Epaphras, Paul is laying the ground for attacking the false teachers because what is being preached by the Colossian heretics is the opposite of what was preached by Epaphras when he proclaimed the word of God. So from Epaphras they heard, verse 5 of chapter 1, the word of truth. So there is Epaphras. Undoubtedly used by the Lord to plant the church there at Colossae, or it seems to be a reasonable inference. He's reporting back to the team leader, Paul the Apostle, back there in Rome, who was in prison. And there with Paul, what does Epaphras want to talk about? Well, he wants to talk about his flock. Undoubtedly, he told Paul about the heretics, but he doesn't start there. So what does he say about his flock? Well, he says you should see their faith and their love and, you know, the hope that is theirs. And verse 8 tells us, he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras must have said something like this to Paul. Paul, what a wonderful thing it is to see the Holy Spirit at work among the Christians there in Colossae. These folk have believed the gospel and they really love one another. After all, Paul, did you not teach us that love is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, the Spirit is at work in those Christians' lives and they love each other. And he probably gave to Paul instances of their love to one another. Perhaps he said, when there was someone really sick in our congregation, they took meals every day. Another person has a real gift in prayer and quietly exercises that gift praying for every member of the congregation, even though most people don't know that it's happening. And then another member was in moral trouble, and the flock really came around him and held him up and and helped to, to give him real accountability. On and on he must have gone, gone. Epaphras must have said, you know, they act like people. In that congregation they really do act like people who are going to spend eternity together in heaven. They love each other that way. So even in this thanksgiving and reminding them of their wonderful pastor Epaphras, the Apostle Paul is saying, back up, get away from the heretics, remember that the gospel is what bears fruit in your life. And Epaphras has seen that fruit and he has communicated it now to Paul. And Paul writes back to the church and he says, I think this is your deepest commitment. I really do. No wonder then Paul is grateful and expresses that gratitude to God. You know, I enjoy uh, knowing about the many, many things people are doing for one another around here, most of which will not be known to the congregation at large, but only by those few who may be involved. I enjoy watching the congregation before and after a service to see the way in which you express love one to another, young and old. And I enjoy telling other people about my flock. And what do I say? Well, it could have come right from the lips of Epaphras. I say what Epaphras did to Paul. You know, they believe the word of truth there at Covenant. 
and how they love one another. I can give you example after example, and we share the same hope and the, the same future inheritance, and we're moving on under the authority of God's Word right there. Well, that's Paul's Thanksgiving. Are we so cold and dead and dry inside that we can hear a Thanksgiving and not give thanks? Are you unmoved by the thanksgivings that you find at the beginning of the epistles of Paul? Do you realize that every epistle of Paul but two, Galatians and Titus, has a thanksgiving? And there are reasons for that. Every one of them. The section is teeming with implications, wouldn't you agree? So let's bring out a few of those implications now. Let me give you just a few. The first implication is this. Believer, do you cultivate gratitude? Do you cultivate gratitude? You know, Christian graces may be cultivated, but you cannot cultivate what you don't have. You cannot cultivate a Christian grace if you're not a Christian. So I'm talking to Christians here, but I'll also say to the lost, if you hear about these things and these things are not characteristic of your life, you need Christ. But Christian, do you cultivate gratitude? For what do I have to be grateful? (laughs) He saved you from your sin, hasn't he? He's removed his condemning wrath through the cross, hasn't he? He's raised his son from the dead and raised you to spiritual life from the dead, hasn't he? He has united you with his son. He has given you an inheritance. He has given you the rights and privileges of the sons of God. He has given you everlasting life. He has given you a great intercessor. He has given you the promise that you will be with him when you die. He has given you the promise of resurrection bodies in the last day. God has given you himself. How can one moment go by in ingratitude? How can we live a Christian life without desiring to cultivate within our hearts this sense of thanksgiving to God? And yet I hear often when I pray with brothers and sisters in Christ, we go right to the need and we often do not worship and we often do not give thanks. And how often upon your knees, all right, let that be the next implication. Let me ask this. I've asked you cultivate it. Let's be a little more specific. Do you pray with gratitude? Is that characteristic of your prayer life? Gratitude. Have you ever been lost in giving thanks to God in prayer to the extent that you didn't get to your petitions? Has that ever happened to you? Paul offers gratitude here and again in verse 12. He does it again. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share. He can't help himself. He's just bursting with gratitude and thanksgiving. You say, well, I don't know how to give thanks. Well, I just gave you a list, a short list of those great themes that make for gratitude. Why don't you start there? And in this sermon, we see right from the text a number of reasons for gratitude for the church, for faithful brothers and sisters, for the spread of the gospel, for a faithful ministry. We have every reason to be thankful to God. So, Pastor, you just don't understand my circumstances. Things are so very hard, and I know they're hard for many of you. 
hard for all of us in a fallen world, hard in particular for some. You just don't get it. I, I'm so focused on my problem, I, I just don't give thanks. Paul was writing from his first Roman imprisonment. It will lead to another imprisonment, and it will lead to his death, and Paul cannot help but give thanks. Nicholson says, the giving of thanks is our answerings to God. It is the circulation of divine life from God to us, from us back to God. Without it, there is scarce any assertion of the real glory of the gospel. It is conscious peace, conscious joy, conscious victory. So giving thanks is simply receiving from God, giving back to God, living in conscious peace, conscious joy, conscious victory, in the victory of Christ. So do you cultivate thanksgiving? Does it characterize your prayer life? And we have problems, and I am, in no way am I suggesting that we bury our head in the sands and don't face the problems, but we should face our problems from grateful hearts for who Christ is and what he has done for us, for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for his gospel. Which leads to another implication. Grateful people spread the gospel, Right? Grateful people spread the gospel. W.R. Nicholson wrote, and when I was a boy of about 13, 14 years old, Bishop Lightfoot and Bishop Nicholson were two books on Colossians that really gripped my heart. There were two books that gripped me as a boy. Galatians, Colossians. Well, W.R. Nicholson says this. Remember, we're talking about grateful people spreading the gospel. He says, the gospel is meant to be a traveler in all the world. Now, its power of traveling is in the fact of its fruitfulness in individual hearts. Enjoyers of the gospel are they who must extend it. Accordingly, how necessary to be conversant with the hope laid up for us in the heavens. This hope reacts and stimulates and sustains our love. We cannot be selfish. We cannot become contracted within ourselves while our spirits are dilating with appreciation of the joy set before us, the joy and power of heavenly mindedness. And Nicholson is right. If our minds and hearts are focused on the good things that God does for us, then that frees us from that kind of self-centeredness that binds me to be always thinking about me and my life and my problems and my needs, as great as they may be, and frees me to offer gratitude and thanksgiving to God in prayer, and yes, even to say to somebody else, you need the Savior that I have, let me tell you about Him. Grateful people... Ever get a gift at Christmas you're so thankful you can't contain? Look at what God has given us. How can we contain? Right? Well, one more thing. Lots of implications. You go home and think about them. Talk about it over lunch. 
One more thing. Let's underscore the theme of gratitude found in this epistle right in its opening by remembering a healing ministry of our Lord Jesus in Luke 17. Do you remember that Jesus healed ten lepers? All ten asked to be healed, and Jesus healed all ten. But the scriptures say, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down at his feet giving him thanks. And Jesus said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. He healed ten. One. And about that one you can learn more because it's significant in Luke 17. One came back and gave thanks. We have been blessed in our families, in our church, in our nation. The Lord has given us spiritual blessings and fruitfulness of all kinds. It is part of the way Christians live simply to say, Lord, I thank you. I thank you. May the Lord not look upon Covenant Presbyterian Church and say, I've blessed you all. But only one has come. Where are the nine? May that not be true of us. Follow the false teachers and gratitude will be crushed and you will have a hard heart. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, A hard heart is the anvil on which the hammer of God's justice will be striking to all eternity. Know Christ and his gospel and live in the promise of a certain future and you will not be able to help praising God for his infinite goodness. So in principle, two hearts are contrasted as we look at this Thanksgiving. The hard, unbelieving, ungrateful, self-centered heart. The believing heart full of hope that cannot help praising God and offering thanks. Which is you? And God's people said, Amen.